Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So good. Those baptisms, so rich. Come on, if you see somebody that got baptized after the service tonight, I hope that you will give them a fist bump or a high five or whatever they are comfortable with in this era of distancing. But we can't stop celebrating with each other. So I hope that you would celebrate with each of them as as you see them. Hey, I want to read tonight just to get us started out of Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40. This is going to be our our text tonight, Luke 8. I'm going to be beginning in verse 40. I'm going to read down to 48. It says, on the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they had been waiting for him. And then a man named Jairus, a leader of a local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. And as Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds. And a woman in the crowd had, had, in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had some type of bleeding disorder. Many historians believe it could have been hemophilia. And she could find no cure. Now coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. Everyone denied it, and Peter said, Master, the whole crowd is pressing up against you. But Jesus said, no, someone deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power come out of me. And when the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and she fell to her knees. We're going to talk about why that is in front of him. And the whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and how she had immediately been healed. And this is what Jesus says to her. Jesus' daughter, that's important. We're going to talk about that later. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Go in peace. This sermon series that we've been doing all summer is examining conversations that people have had with God. And from these conversations, there are things that we glean that are supposed to be part of our own journey and in our own lives. And what's interesting about this story is the way in which she reached for Jesus and how she did it. When we look back to Numbers 15, Beginning in verse 37, it says this to us. Then the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. Throughout the generations to come, you must make tassels for the hems of your clothing and attach them with a blue cord. And when you see the tassels, you will remember and obey all the commands of the Lord instead of following your own desires and defiling defiling yourselves as you are prone to do. The tassels will help you remember that you must obey all the commands and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that I might be your God. I am the Lord your God. Come on, maybe we need a little bit of that in our fashion today. Something incorporated in our clothing that when we put it on, it reminds the world that the Lord is our God and he has expectations of us. This word for tassels in the Hebrew is the word kanaf, K-A-N-A-F, kanaf, and it means the edge of something, the fringe of something. And as we keep reading the Old Testament, we get to Malachi 4.2 where it says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, which is a prophecy about the coming Messiah, who we know to be Jesus, listen to what it says, will rise with healing in his wings. 
And you will go free, leaping with joy like calves let out to a pasture. Now, it's interesting that when the Holy Spirit inspired Malachi to write this book, the word that he uses for wings is also the same word that we find in Numbers. It's kanaf. Now, because of that, there was a belief that formed in Israel that when the Messiah comes, that there will be healing in the hem of his garment. And that belief was passed down from generation to generation. We know that there are 400 years of prophetic silence between Malachi writing his book, 400 years of prophetic silence before we have Jesus coming onto the scene and the story of the Gospels is written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 400 years. That's a lot of generations, people. But generation after generation after generation after generation, finally, this woman is born, and she's born with this terrible disease. But you know what also she was given? She was given a belief that when her Messiah comes, that there will be healing in the hem of his garment. So when she's in this crowd, surrounded by thousands of people, and she's desperate, she reaches because of the belief that she has about Christ and his cloak. She didn't just have faith. I would suggest to you that she had courageous faith because of what she did in that moment. She risked her life. Because according to Mosaic law, if you had some type of disorder with bleeding or if you came in contact with blood, you, you were unclean. And if you were in a crowd and you were unclean, you were supposed to walk around declaring yourself to be unclean, literally. You had to say, unclean, unclean, as you walked through a crowd so that people would not come in contact with you, so you, you would not make them ceremonially unclean. So here we have this woman, she's unclean, according to her religion. She's in a crowd, she's making everybody else unclean, and she reaches to grab a spiritual leader who's on his way to minister to healing to someone else, and she risks making him unclean, according to their belief system. If she had been wrong, and this had not been the Messiah. If she had been wrong and she had not been healed. If this has been some other person and she had false hope. And people had found out what she had done. She would have been stoned to death on the spot. Now that's some courage. So when we see her trembling in the crowd, now we understand why she's afraid. She, she knows that she's been healed, but now she's afraid. Is there going to be a consequence to my faith? Incredible courage, incredible courage. You and I are going to face things in this life that will require courageous faith. Which inspires a question in me, how do we grow that courageous faith? Because when we face situations and circumstances that are, are going to require both faith and courage, will it be present in us? And I believe that in Scripture, we are taught things that we can do, things that we can believe, environments that we create in our own lives that cultivate the growth of courageous faith in us. So it is there when we need it. I did a study years ago on some names in the Old Testament of four people. And in that study, I found some pretty interesting things about the meaning of these four names. And we're going to dive into these four names tonight, and we're going to look at them as a parallel to this story of this daughter filled with faith. 
Because I believe that as we look at their names, we find some, some clues. We find some things that God has hidden in his word for us to help us cultivate this thing called courageous faith. All right, the first one is this. We haven't done giveaways in a while, so we're going to dip our toe back in the water tonight. I'm not going to come out into the crowd, but I've got a couple of Amazon gift cards. If you're watching from home and you're with online church, you can give the answer. If you're the first one to put it in the chat, then let one of our hosts, one of our hosts will figure out who you are and we'll mail it to you. If you're here, you're going to have to come up and get it yourself. This is the first one. If you're not courageous enough to come up and get it, then I'll keep it for myself. So, so the first, this is my question to you. Who is, who is this person? Belteshazzar is the first person to call it out. You come up and get this card. Who's Belteshazzar? Who do we know him to be? Who said Daniel? Somebody said Daniel first. Anybody? It's your honor system. Some, was it Dave Comorning? All right. Come on, Dave. That's your card. Hey, all right, all right. Nice. All right, here's my second one. Here's my second one. Hananiah. Who's Hananiah? Anybody? Yes. Come on. Nice. We reward Bible literacy here at the City Life Church. It's interesting to me, another sermon for another time. We know Daniel by his Hebrew name. We know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by their Babylonian names. But, but their Hebrew names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And when we look at their names, we find something interesting about the meaning of each of their names. And I believe each one of these is one of the ways, there's many ways, but one of the ways in which we cultivate and grow courageous faith in our lives. The first one is this. Daniel means God is my judge. God is my judge. Hananiah means God has shown grace. Mishael means who is what God is. And Azariah means God has helped. Now let's look at each one of those. God is my judge. The first one is this. Courageous faith grows when God's opinion of me is more important than the crowd's opinion of me. Courageous faith grows when God's opinion of me is more important than the crowd's opinion of me. Luke 8, 47, in our story that we read already. Let's reread verse 47. When the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble. She fell to her knees in front of him, and the whole crowd could hear her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately been. I love the story that the Bible shows us what she was wrestling with, right? The Bible shows us that she was wrestling with her fear because we wrestle with our fear. But what's so powerful is that she did not let that fear overcome her. She knew in that moment she had a decision to make. What, what was going to be more important to her? What the crowd thought of her or what her creator thought of her? In Daniel chapter 1, 8 to 16, let me read these verses to you. It says, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. If you've not read the book of Daniel, you, it's, it's a fascinating book. The, first, the, the last part of it can kind of get a little confusing because it gets really prophetic, but there's lots of incredible just stories that are embedded in it. Here we know that Daniel and some of the other young men were taken away into captivity from Israel into Babylon. And because these were young men that showed promise, they were invited into the king's court and they were going to be taught and trained and educated so they could be advisors. 
So they had been, all this incredible food had been put in front of them, but most all the food violated the dietary restrictions of the Mosaic law. And on top of that, at this time, they're teenagers, which is a miracle unto itself. They didn't eat the food. So he asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now, God had given the chief of, st- of, the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and the wine. And if you become pale and thin compared to the other youth your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. These are, these are serious consequences. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, right? All four of them in it together. Please test us, he says, for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. Daniel said, and at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food and then make your decision in light of what you see. So good. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggested and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, Daniel and his friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned to the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and the wine provided for the others. These young men had a decision they had to make, did they not? Whose opinion is going to matter to us more? The crowd that we have been put into or the opinion of our God? They had a decision they had to make in this moment. Right? If there's a hall of fame of courageous faith in heaven, I'm telling you, this daughter filled with faith in Luke 8, she's one of them, and so are these four young men. And in all of them, we see them posturing themselves in a way, in a moment, real situation, real circumstances, difficulty, Both of them, all four of them, all five of them, their life is on the line. But yet, we see the opinion of God mattered to them more than the opinion of the crowd. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. Bad company corrupts good character. You've got to make sure that you understand the difference between the crowd that you are living amongst and the company that you are supposed to keep. We're supposed to reach the crowd with the gospel, not supposed to live in isolation. We're supposed to be in the crowd, but that crowd's not supposed to be the company that we keep. The family of God is supposed to be the company that we keep. This word company here in 1 Corinthians 15, 33 is the Greek word homilia. It means companionship. It means communion. In, in, in the day that this book was written, this word in the comic Greek also meant a sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. So it's not just talking about casual relationships. It's talking about people whose opinions matter. It's the only time in the entire New Testament that this word is used. And I think that's on purpose. I love how Chris opened the service tonight. He didn't know I was going to be working out of Psalm 122, 1 through 3. But as soon as the service opened, I was like, we're on the right track. Psalm 122, 1 through 3. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And now here we are standing inside your gates, O Jerusalem. Listen to what it says. Jerusalem is a well-built city. Its seamless walls cannot be breached. Now, this means lots of things, but one of them, I believe, means this, is that you have got to have a pattern in your life where you step out of the crowd of the world that you're living in, and you come into the house of God with the people of God, and in a spiritual sense, it cannot be breached by the opinions of the outside. 
so that you can immerse yourself in a setting, in an environment where you're constantly being reminded about God's opinion of you, God's promises over you, and his expectations that he has for you. For too many people, they drift away. They drift away from the opinion of God being paramount to this life of where they live for the acceptance of the secular. Oftentimes it's because they have dialed down the volume of the family of God who's supposed to be the company that they keep. Courageous faith grows when God's opinion of me is more important than the crowd's opinion of me. I hope that part of your plan for living, if you're a parent, part of the example that you're setting for your children is that you are regularly immersing yourself into environments where the company that you keep is the family of God so that the opinion of God is the loudest voice in your life. Loudest voice in your life. Number two. Who is what God is? Courageous faith grows when God becomes the center of my life and not just part of the crowd. Courageous faith grows when God becomes the center of my life and not just part of the crowd. Luke 8, verse 40. On the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they had been waiting for them. Now, if you've not familiar with this part of the Bible, you should go and read the beginning of Luke chapter 8, and there's all these incredible miracles that he's doing, and, and so his reputation is, is, is spreading. His, this is the end of the second year. It's called the, the, the end of the year of his popularity before he enters into the year of his, his opposition, three years of Jesus' public ministry, so he's at the end of the second, so his fame is renowned. People are waiting for him wherever he goes. At this point in his journey, what you find is that wherever Jesus goes, he either forms a crowd or sometimes he seeks out a crowd, but when he steps into it, he becomes the center of it. Daniel 1, 8 to 16, tells us about how when Nebuchadnezzar came in and conquered Israel, he went into the temple and he took away all of the sacred objects. He went into the treasury and took away all of their wealth. And you know what he did? When he got back to Babylon, he put all of those treasures into the place where he collected all of the other sacred things from other kingdoms that he had conquered. I don't know if you collect things. People tend to collect things. Few people in this world will collect things like Nebuchadnezzar collected things. He collected the treasures of nations. And even though we believe that many of these treasures that he stole away were more sacred than any other artifact in that room, in that moment, they were just put in there with everything else. Just put in there with everything else. Daniel 2, 46 to 47 says this. This is after Daniel interprets a dream that nobody else could interpret. It says, then King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshiped him, and he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. And the king said to Daniel, truly your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal the secret. And, and what we see here is that Nebuchadnezzar is making a proclamation. 
that the God of the Jewish people has, he's giving, right, if, if, as if God needs his permission, is giving God permission to be integrated and assimilated with all the other gods that are worshipped throughout the empire. How many of us know that God is not into integration and, and assimilation? The kingdom of God is about subjugation. When you make a vow of devotion to Christ, you have to make a decision. Are you asking Jesus to assimilate into your life? To integrate into your life? The, the people that were baptized tonight, one of the things that we talk about in the class that Pastor David taught them before they went into there was this idea of the primacy of your relationship with Christ. That now every other aspect of who you are in this world has to be examined through your relationship with Christ. There's nothing else in this world that is like that. And for so many people, they drift away. Their relationship with Christ can begin to atrophy because their approach to Christianity and the relationship with Jesus is one of integration and assimilation instead of subjugation. But if your life with Christ is going to thrive, if courageous faith is going to grow inside of you, then you've got to have this idea of Jesus being your king and everything else in your life comes under his authority without exception. The whole world is headed there at some point. I don't know about you, but I want to choose to get there voluntarily before then. Because Philippians 2 says that there will come a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. I want to just mention something about marriage here. This is another sermon for another time as well. I'm thinking about maybe doing a series on marriage and family in the fall or possibly for our Christmas series. But at such a sense to just put a plug in here for this, just for this moment, that it might be meaningful for someone. Marriage is another place where primacy matters. When Vanessa and I do premarital counseling with a couple who's about ready to get married, we do a few different sessions, but we always do the first session where we talk about this idea of be one, where the Bible talks about leave and cleave in the King James language and what that means. And it, and it starts with this idea of the primacy of marriage. 50% of marriages end in divorce, whether people are Christian or not, 50%. The percentage does not change for people of faith. It does not change. And I believe one of the reasons why that is is because people don't understand the principle of primacy when it comes to marriage. Marriage will not, listen to me, marriage will not work if when you get married, your plan is to integrate your marriage into the rest of your life. Marriage will not work. It will not work if your plan is to assimilate marriage into everything else that you are. Marriage has to become primary. In fact, the only thing that marriage is secondary to is your relationship with Christ. And when you approach marriage that my relationship with Christ is my primary relationship, and just after that, it's my relationship with my spouse, then you're on. Now, there's a lot of other things that you've got to do, but if you don't get that right, nothing else you do will matter, I'm telling you. In over 20 years of pastoral ministry, I'm telling you, every marriage that gets sideways at some point, they either didn't start with the idea of the primacy of marriage, or they forsook it. Or they forsook it. 
We joke oftentimes that in premarital counseling, we should actually do the first session with all of their family instead of the bride and the groom. Oh yeah, you know what I'm talking about. That's a whole lot of people married out there laughing. Yeah. It is hard when you have had a relationship with someone or something, a career, a dream, a hope, and that has to be displaced. It's hard for you, and it's hard for that person. So we're not minimizing the difficulty, but just because it's hard doesn't mean that we should walk away from it. Marriage displaces everything else in your life. And you have to live your life letting marriage have a displacing impact for the rest of your life if your marriage is going to thrive. The same is true of your life with God. Who is what God is? What does that mean? It means that there is no one like him. That's why the Lord's Prayer starts with our Father, who art in heaven. Who art in heaven means he's divine. He's all-knowing, ever-present, and all-powerful. And then the next line is, hallowed be thy name. Now, that line's important because it's telling us that no one else is like him. He's the only one. He stands alone. You've got to let him become the center. When you stop and think about all your life roles... Just in a moment, just through your head, think about all the different ways that you could describe yourself, all your many life roles. Have you just integrated God into your life or are you ready to give God dominion over every aspect of your life? Because until you do that, you will not cultivate. A lot of things will not happen, but one of them most certainly is you will not cultivate a spiritual environment in your life where courageous faith can grow. Number three, Courageous faith grows when I realize I'm called to help the crowd like God has helped me. Courageous faith grows when I, when I realize I'm called to help the crowd like God has helped me. This next name means God has helped. Let's go back to verse 47 in chapter 8. When the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble. We've used this verse. I'm going to use the second half of it. We used the first part. Let's talk about the second part of it. When the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of him. Listen to what it says. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had immediately been healed. See, in that moment, Jesus isn't just ministering to her. He's ministering to the crowd through her testimony through her story. In that moment, she was willing to not just keep it to herself, but she was willing to give it as a gift to everyone who was there. Daniel 1, 17 reads this way. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. You should just pray that over your children as they go back to school. In Jesus' name, right? Whew. Now listen to what it says. I love these verses. And God gave Daniel 
the special ability to interpret the meaning of visions and dreams. So he gave all four of them the aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And then he gives to Daniel, not to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he gives to Daniel something extra. He gives him something extra, the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. I'm not going to go there for the sake of time, but in 1 Corinthians 12, we're told some incredible things about what happens to us when we make, make a vow of devotion to Christ and the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. It says to us that God gives us gifts, spiritual gifts, supernatural abilities. Why? So we can exalt ourselves, so our ego can grow, so we can be famous or wealthy or rich. Absolutely not. He gives us those gifts so that we can help the crowd that we are are immersed in, in this life, in the same way that God has helped us. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 7, we find the phrase, each of us, which means that there are no exceptions. Every single person who makes a vow of devotion to Christ, God deposits things in you for you to use, for me to use, to help the crowd, just as God has helped us. We're going to get into these concepts a little bit more in the sermon series that we're headed towards, Shalom, in September. Let me just whet your appetite a little bit here. Just because God gives someone else more doesn't mean that he gave you less. Our gifts are relative to our purpose. God didn't love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego less than he loved Daniel. He just he had different plans and purposes for them. So he equips us based on the purposes that he created us to do. You know why we tend to neglect our gifts? By comparing them to other people? And because we would have rather had what God gave to someone else than he gave to us. Be careful when you step on the sovereignty of God. I'm just saying We neglect our gifts when we feel like God withheld from us. Not necessarily that we wish he had given us different gifts, but maybe sometimes we say to him, you should have given me more. I could have done more if you had given me more. And then there are times where we neglect our gift because of shame. This is real. This is real. God has given us gifts and we're willing to help, but because we look back into the story of our life and see our misdeeds, see the things that we've done that we are ashamed of, we begin to disqualify ourselves from helping the world around us. Listen to Jeremiah 29, 7. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Wow. Pray to the Lord for it. For its, welfare, for its welfare will determine yours. Did you know that Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel were all contemporaries of each other? They were all contemporaries, living and ministering in the same time period as Israel was falling and being swept away into captivity in Babylon. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I send you into exile. Help the crowd that you're in. In the same way that God has helped you. 
Did you know that when we get to heaven, the Bible talks about gifts and rewards and accolades. We don't know exactly what those are going to be. We don't. But it's there in, in Scripture. This is one of them, Revelation 19, 6 through 8, that says, Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean waves, or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord! If the music's too loud for you here, you're in trouble when you get there. I'm just saying. Praise the Lord! For the Lord our God, the mighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice, and let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. That's us, the church. So what it says, she has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. Now, I don't know if that means that we're going to actually be given something to wear. It could be just prophetic imagery, or maybe we are. And what if it's more literal than it is symbolic? The fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. There's going to be some people walking around heaven and some mediums, people. Maybe the shirt that you're going to wear, the size of it is going to be based on the good deeds that you do here. And is it possible that I'm going to hold mine up to God and say, I can't wear this. And he's going to say, that's on you. And maybe if you put it on over time, Fred, it'll stretch out to accommodate your selfishness. Yeah. Good deeds. How much of my life, right now, preaching to myself, am I willing to help the crowd that I am in, whether I think they deserve it or not, whether I think they've earned it or not, whether I think they brought it on themselves or not, Because God has helped us, not because we deserve it. He helps us because of who he is, not because of who we are. And we're called to be that in the world in which we live. The last one is this. Now, I'm not going to give it to you first. I want to build for this one. This last name of God is God has shown grace. God has shown grace. Luke 8. We have this incredible story where the reason why this crowd has formed and is in motion is because Jairus, an important person, has come to Jesus and has said, My daughter is dying. My daughter is dying. Will you come and minister? healing to her. Will you come? Will you come? I love in verse 48 when Jesus looks down at this woman who's been popularized by the name of the woman with the issue of blood. I'm going to start calling her the daughter, faithful daughter. Let's identify her based on, right, her healing and not her pain. I love that when Jesus looks down at her, the very first thing that he says to her is daughter. It's good, isn't it? Daughter. 
daughter. Verses 49 to 56. While he was still speaking to her, a messenger arrived. This is speaking to the faith-filled daughter. A messenger arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, and he told him, your, your daughter is dead. There is no use troubling the teacher now. <laughs> Jesus is thinking, no, 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 no. This is where I do my best work. But when Jesus heard what had happened, he said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith, she will be healed. You think it's an accident that Jairus has just witnessed the healing of this woman? What a gift. God in his sovereignty orchestrating the crossing of these paths for faith to grow in Jairus' heart right in the moment that he needs it because of what he just witnessed through her story. And when they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in with him except for Peter, James, and John and the little girl's father and mother, and the house was filled with people weeping and wailing. But he said, stop weeping. She isn't dead. She's only asleep. He's not saying that she's not dead. What he's saying is, I can wake a person up from death like you wake a person up from a nap. But the crowd laughed at him because they all knew that she had died. Then Jesus took her by the hand and he said in a loud voice, my child, get up. And at that moment, her life returned and she immediately stood up, stop it. Every time I read these stories, I often think, I wonder who else was in the crowd that day in Luke chapter 8 that was desperate for something of Jesus and was afraid to reach out. When we think about this crowd that had amassed, we, we, we have to believe that there were many desperate needs that were represented there. How many of them went home that day? Because they didn't have the courageous faith of this young woman. They didn't have the courageous faith of Jairus and his family. Let's make it personal, shall we? How many times do we gather together on Saturdays just like this? Needing God's help, but choose to stay hidden in the crowd. How many times have you come here feeling compelled to respond in some moment that's presented to you, but yet you choose to stay hidden in the crowd that you're in? And for you, it might not be a crowd. It's a crowd for you if you're a visitor. But if this is your church home, this is your family, it's not just your crowd, but it's the company that you're supposed to keep. You can stay hidden in the company just as much as you can stay hidden in the crowd. I'm telling you, we're trying to find creative ways to ramp back up responsive moments here as part of our service. If you were here for the first weekend in August when we did 
communion together. If you weren't, we had two stations up here where Vanessa and I and Chuck and Penny, elders here, we created a foot washing station for, for people who had been wounded and hurt by spiritual leaders. Just to stand in proxy for them to hear somebody say to them, I'm sorry. It was powerful. We didn't know if people were going to come, but we don't do things like that. We don't calculate whether or not people are are, are not going to do it. Our responsibility is to create opportunities for you to reach for Jesus. To reach for Jesus. And we're going to keep doing that. It might be different for you. It might be new for you. But at some point, we, listen, we have to stop. We have to stop asking the question, is it, is it normative for our culture? And start asking the question, is it a biblical mandate? Because it's a, if it's a biblical mandate, then I want to move in that regardless of what society thinks about it. So we're committed. Every weekend that we're doing communion, we're going to do some creative things, create opportunities for you to respond, create opportunities for you to reach for the hem of the garment of Christ because I'm telling you, he still heals and he still saves. Courageous faith grows when I'm reminded I've been adopted out of the crowd and into God's family. Courageous faith grows when I'm reminded I've been adopted out of the crowd and into God's family. John 1.12 says, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Listen to Ephesians 1.5. It says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Jesus. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Come on. Stand with me. I'm going to invite the band's going to come back up. and We're not going to do a song, but they're going to play because we're going to set up prayer and I'm going to share some closing thoughts. But at the end of every service, at the end of every service, we're going to have people down here at the front to pray for you. It might be that you have come into this sanctuary many, many times and you have felt compelled to come for prayer and you have not. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you tonight, I'm telling you tonight, find some courage to act on your faith. You might say, well, I, don't, I don't want the people that I came with to have to wait. They'll wait. They'll wait. And if they don't, well, we'll give you a ride home. At some point, you got to choose. You got to choose. Are you going to respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit inside of your heart? Or are you going to cave to all the many voices that are clamoring around in your head that are leading you in the wrong direction? There is courageous faith, people. Courageous faith that we need to bring to the world, not just for ourselves. Let's pivot here. But the body of Christ and the family of God is supposed to be postured and positioned to be able to bring courageous faith to other people's situations and to other people's circumstances. That's part of the story. We don't have time to go there tonight, but part of the story of Jairus is that Jesus brought more faith into that moment than they did. Sometimes we are the woman, the, the faith-filled daughter, and we bring co courageous faith 
for ourselves in response to our circumstance and situation, but sometimes we're supposed to be like Christ and we're supposed to bring courageous faith into other people's situation and circumstances. It's not just about us. It's about the world we live in and the time in history that God picked for us and the crowd that we're immersed in. It's one of the reasons why we're getting together to pray on Tuesday. I hope you come. Hope you, if you've never fasted before, give up a meal. You're, you're going to be all right. Let's come into that room on Tuesday night with some courageous faith. Some courageous faith. Reaching for the hem of the garment of Christ. Being willing to go into the Jairus spaces where it seems as though that all is lost and death has won. Father, find us as a people who want to grow and cultivate courageous faith in our lives so we can navigate our own tragedies, but also so we can step in the tragedy of other people and be a source of hope. Be a source of hope. Father, just as Vanessa opened this service for us, God, we know that happiness is something that rises and falls based on the circumstance that we're in. But joy is something that we bring with us regardless of what we're walking into. So even if it is that we're carrying a lament tonight, I pray that joy would begin to well up in people's hearts. I pray for people that are here tonight and this idea of courageous faith is new for them. I pray that it would inspire them that their heart is just as much of a garden for courageous faith as anyone else. Help us do the weeding that needs to be done and the planning that's got to start so we can be the people that you've called and created us to be. And this time in history, in Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, amen.